Welcome back to the Global Supply Chain Summit. I'm John Kingston. I'm the editor-at-large at FreightWaves. You know, when I began covering the issues of AB5 and the legal status of independent contractors here at FreightWaves, I kept waiting to come across that one big legal decision that really settled the question once and for all, when is a worker an, an independent contractor and when is a worker an employee? And it, I realized after a little bit of time that that case doesn't exist, that there are lots of legal precedents out there and that as uh, as issues go forward, a lot of lawyers are going to be called upon to work with clients, whether they're workers or whether they're employers, on determining whether an employee, I, should, I won't call them an employee, whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee. This issue is not going to go away. And uh, what I really found, of course, is that one of the biggest questions out there uh, is, is AB5, California's AB5 rule. And I really want to discuss that today on the Global Supply Chain Summit. So I brought in somebody who I know knows it as well as anybody, and that's Mark Bluebaugh. He is a partner at the Benish Law Firm, and he's co-chair of the firm's transportation and logistics practice group. He's represented clients in all phases of the supply chain. I have spoken with him for his perspective on various issues involving independent contractor status, and we're glad he is joining us today at the summit. So, Mark, welcome. Thanks for inviting me here, John. Good to see you. So I don't want to have the whole discussion about AB5 because I know that uh, there are a lot of other things going on out there, but let's give our uh, listeners, our viewers, a quick recap. Uh, AB5 is a law defining independent contractor status in the state of California. It has not been implemented in trucking because of an injunction that was handed down literally on day one of when the law was going to go in effect at the start of 2020. That injunction was then overturned by appellate courts. However, uh, the injunction stayed in place as the appeals process ran its course. Uh, it has not run its course as the appeals course process continued, it is now sitting at the Supreme Court. Mark, do you have any idea of what you think the court might do? What, what's kind of just the, the feeling? I, I, I know you're not in the chambers there, but it's all, uh, the Solicitor General is to weigh in with, it, with an opinion. Do you have just kind of a gut feeling? Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged uh, where things stand right now. As you pointed out and alluded to, the U.S. Supreme Court is not obligated to review uh, this case, but it has the discretion to decide which cases to accept based on a whole variety of factors. Uh, usually the, the driving ones are, is this a case of great public importance? And is it necessary to resolve some contradictory court decisions in the lower courts? And, you know, statistically, the court has about 7,000 cases a year that where parties are seeking review, and it only takes about 100, 150 of them. So regardless of the merits, the odds are always daunting. But as you suggested, that said, if we step back to November, uh, back in November 12th of, of this past year, the Supreme Court took a look at CTA's petition on this case. And on November 15th, just a couple of days later, it invited the Solicitor General of the U.S. to file a brief expressing the views of the United States on that petition. And that that's an extremely favorable development. And at a minimum, John, it's at least a sign of the court's interest in this case. And on the same day, the court invited the Solicitor General to file a brief in the Virgin American uh, case as well, which involves the application of California's meal and rest break rules to airline flight crews involving a similar preemption statute as is involved in the AB5 case. And although it doesn't really relate to worker classification, in yet another case, Miller versus C.H. Robinson, that's before the court or the court is considering that addresses a another aspect of the scope of F-4-8 preemption, the court did a similar thing. So collectively, the court's interest in all of these cases may, I hope, indicate a recognition 
that the Ninth Circuit's approach, let's say, to preemption under the, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration Authorization Act, the F4A, and similar provisions under the Airline Deregulation Act, that they are need of, in need of correction. That's what I hope. That's what I'm optimistic about. Um, Solicitor General doesn't have a deadline to file its brief, so CTA's petition could remain pending in limbo for some time. It's not necessarily a bad thing because the Ninth Circuit did leave the district court's order in place in the meantime during the pendency of the petition. Um, so the, the state of California continues to be prohibited from enforcing AB5 against motor carriers until there's some further action by the Supreme Court. So, so let's recap two things. First of all, the preemption that we're talking about here is for the, the Federal Aviation Administration Act, Federal Aviation Administration Authorization Act, the F4A that Mark referred to. And the question here is whether the parts of that, whether the, the provisions of that law block a rule like 85, that's number one. But I think it's also notable, you know, you talk about the calendar, you talk about November, uh, the Supreme Court term starts in the first Monday of October, and we are already, you know, four months past that. And this term ends, you know, the end of June, I guess the term technically runs a full year, but effectively runs to the end of June. So you've really only got about you know, may, maybe as much time in the rest of this term as you've had already. So the, the, the clock is running. And as you pointed out, there's no deadline. Yeah. I mean, my guess, and this is only a guess, that I would think that we'll still hear whether or not the court is going to grant cert uh, in the next couple of months. It'll certainly before the end of this term, I would hope that the Solicitor General will file its, his brief and that we'll have a decision from the court as to whether or not they take it. And if they take it, I imagine that the briefing will then begin in the fall of 2022 with a decision either sometime during the end of the 2022 term, which, as you pointed out, ends in June of 2023. That's my best guess. So I would hope that over the next few months before the end of this term, we'll find out whether the court is, in fact, going to consider the case. And fingers crossed that it does. What am I going to write about all that time if it takes that long? I'm, I'm going to be kind of lost there. Uh, let me ask you, let, let, let's play, let's kind of play fantasy or what if. Um, I'm sure that even though this thing is on ice right now in California, I'm sure you've had some clients come to you and say, well, what if AB5 becomes the law of the land in California? Uh, there are all sorts of scenarios about what a trucking company could do, a trucking company that is mostly dependent upon the independent owner-operator model uh, to move a lot of freight. Uh, what are some of the sort of, I hate to say craziest scenarios, but I think at this point, it would so overturn the way the industry operates that any scenario is crazy at this point. Yeah, it's it is true, and it's it's a there are lots of different paths that parties may go down depending on how this decision plays out. Um, you know, if if AB five is enforced, uh, motor carriers are going to explore and evaluate a number of alternative operating models to mitigate risk. So some will just bite the bullet and and become you know they'll they'll start using employees. Others may try to evaluate, for instance, whether they can qualify for the business-to-business -business exemption provided in AB5. That's another possible path that might work. Others will deploy a kind of a freight brokerage model uh, where they will, they will simply become a freight broker and tender to individual uh, former owner-operators who will become their own motor carriers. Um, you know, there are a variety of structures along those lines that the parties will explore, but you know, responsible motor carriers in that market are going to have to make it a priority to evaluate quickly their use of independent contractors uh, in the event that the court doesn't take review of the case. Um, and, and even if the court does review it, and even if AB5 is ultimately uh, enjoined permanently as against the motor carriage industry, 
uh, in California, undoubtedly, uh, you're going to see some further attacks down the road. Sadly, that won't be the end of the battle. Um, you know, there is a, a relentless attack on the independent contractor model from a variety of fronts, uh, both the, not only the state and local government sometimes, but of course, disgruntled owner operators themselves who sometimes decide, well, I really wasn't an independent contractor. I was an employee. But, but those who are attacking this model really are relentless. They, they perceive that they have the moral high ground. Uh, some may be well-intentioned, but others, like many of the unions, for instance, are acting in their own self-interest. Um, so, yeah, be prepared for other creative attacks on the model, even if AB5 is ultimately enjoined permanently, which we certainly hope will be the case. Right. Let's remember that in AB5, there is the ABC test. Uh, it is the B prong of the ABC test that is problematic because it seems to undercut the idea that you can use independent owner operators if you're a trucking company. And even if AB5 gets permanently enjoined, uh, the precedent, the, the civil law precedent of the ABC test does remain. Right? Yeah. All right, let's, let's move on a little bit. Let's move on a little bit talking about uh, problems or conflicts with the independent contractor model. Uh, in Washington, you've got another big change there. Um, you have a, of course, I won't call it a new administration anymore because it's been in office for more than a year. But in the wage and hour division uh, of the Bureau of Labor, there was an independent contractor rule that went into effect or was announced about two weeks before the Trump administration left office. Um, the Biden administration yanked that rule very, very quickly and uh, has yet to come up with its own rule, its own definition of an independent contractor status. I think we can. And the, the, the other interesting aspect of this is that there is no current head of the wage and hour division, but there is a nominee. His name is David Weil. Or is it Weil or Wheel? You can help me on that one. I think it's I think it's David Weil, um, who, who was the administrator under the Obama administration. And he is, I think we would say, very favorable to the idea that a worker is probably more likely to be an employee or an independent contractor. Uh, how big an issue is that for you? Yeah, it's it's a big issue. He's he's not a good nominee. Obviously, those in the trucking industry are, are undoubtedly going to oppose him for, for what it's worth. Um, the DOL, of course, you know, has had its own test. We talked about these various tests that get applied to determine whether a worker is an independent contractor or an employee. And the U.S. DOL has typically had this uh, some version of an economic realities test to determine who is truly subject to minimum wage, for instance, and who is obligated to pay overtime. Um, so the Trump administration had proposed that rule, as you suggested, which would have simplified the test, focusing on a couple of core factors, two core factors, predominantly the nature and degree of control, uh, as well as the opportunity for profit and loss. Um, those were going to be driving. That's out the window, as you, as you suggested. Now, one thing that the DOL has done in the interim, even though they haven't proposed a new rule yet, is that they just entered into last month a memo of understanding uh, with the NLRB, kind of an agreement between the agencies to share information, to collaborate on investigations of potential violations of, of federal labor and employment laws. And they placed a particular emphasis on worker misclassification as being one of those areas. So based on this new memorandum of understanding and the collaboration that's occurring, employers may be seeing, motor carriers may be running into further efforts um, uh, between the NLRB and the DOL. They may be referring alleged violators to each other. They may be kind of strategizing who's going to pursue and who's going to kind of stand back, maybe to come in for a second attack uh, after uh, the first one is resolved. They'll be sharing information. They're creating a system 
to exchange information and data um, that wouldn't otherwise be available for public disclosure. Um, they're going to coordinate their enforcement efforts and their investigations um, you know, between whatever falls within their respective jurisdictions. Um, and there's just the bottom line is, John, there's going to be increased scrutiny of employment relationships uh, at all levels of the federal government. Yeah, and this MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, certainly emphasizes that as well. Let's come back to the NLRB in a minute. I want to ask you, though, the average company probably never sees the uh, Bureau, the, the Wage and Hour Division. They're not like, I don't know, I'm assuming the average company only rarely, if ever, gets hauled before the Wage and Hour Division. So what does their rule matter? Oh, it's certainly, I mean, they will make examples of, of, of certain parties, and it inspires action on the part of states as well. Uh, and that test, whatever version of the test that the USDOL has in any given time, um, uh, has a way of kind of permeating the industry. So when a tighter economic realities test is applied, uh, as it would have been under the Trump administration, it certainly would have been a good thing for the industry overall. But yeah, they, they can be muscular. So don't, you know, I don't want those who are listening to think, oh, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly an incredible long shot for me to get pulled before the U.S. Department of Labor. I mean, we're litigating a case right now out in uh, Arizona in federal court for a client that is, it's an action brought by the USDOL. They're seeking millions and millions of dollars from this particular operator for allegedly misclassifying its drivers. So these things happen, and they're big ticket items with an opponent that has essentially uh, you know, unending resources. They're, there's, you're fighting the government. So they're, they're not worried about the legal budget. I also can't help but think when I, when I wrote about the, uh, the change in the rule at the Bureau of Labor, the uh, Out and Waste Division, the, the whipsawing effect for people in this industry. I mean, they had a, a rule under the Obama administration from David Weil. Then they had the Trump administration. I guess the rule really didn't get written until the end of the Trump administration. I, can, I can't help but feel sorry for the people who spent all their time writing that, only to have it yanked as soon as they, they proposed it. And then you've got another rule um, that's going to come down from the Trump administration, from the Biden administration. And then if the Republicans were to take back the White House uh, after the 2024 elections, presumably you'd have another rule. And, and it must be, I mean, it's probably great work for you to keep up, but but for an, for an employer, it just must be maddening to try to, uh, conduct business with this sort of uncertainty. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and that's really one thing that the Supreme Court, and this is kind of going back to the AB5 issue, at least at a state level, if the Supreme Court issues a, a decision that makes clear what is preempted and what is not, it'll at least help give motor carriers uh, and others in the industry some predictability. Whatever the rule is, at least we'll know this is how the scope of preemption works with respect to the state laws governing worker classification. But you're right, on the federal level, it's a yo-yo. It just, it, 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 like a read in the wind sometimes back and forth. And it is frustrating uh, for all of our clients in that respect. Now, you mentioned the NLRB before. They recently also have indicated they're going to look at some precedents uh, involving independent contractor status that they were involved in. And clearly they're leaning toward a standard in which uh, it would be easier to identify a, uh, a, a worker as, a, as an employee rather than an independent contractor. I, I found what they were doing to be a little complex. Maybe you can make it a little bit simpler for our audience. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is the NLRB applies yet a different test from the IRS and its 20-point factor test and from the DOL with respect to economic realities. NLRB has its own test to determine whether workers are employees or independent contractors. 
And the most recent iteration of their version of the test is referred to as the super shuttle test. It's from a super shuttle case, and it's a 10-factor test, largely based on control again. A lot of these themes always come back to the degree of control that a party is exercising over the worker. Um, um, and in the super shuttle case, that the kind of the governing test right now, most recently, um, the NLRB found that there should be special emphasis placed on entrepreneurial opportunity uh, as well as control. And those were the real animating principles rather than all these other 10 factors necessarily. But the NLRB, as you pointed out right now, is trying to uh, change that again. They want a broad, expansive test. Uh, they've invited comments from interested parties. And in fact, um, the deadline coming up for briefs, for those who wish to submit a brief on this, is coming up on Thursday, uh, February 10th. Um, the whole question is, should we at the NLRB adhere to this super shuttle standard that, that most recently was articulated in a more uh, independent contractor favorable way? And if not, what standard should we apply? And you can bet that they're going to be heading towards more of an Obama-era standard that will make it much more difficult to, uh, to characterize a worker as an independent contractor. I've got a few minutes left. Let's flip back to California and talk about Proposition 22, which, of course, was passed on Election Day in 2019, wait, 2020, I guess. Uh, and um, it basically exempted Uber and Lyft drivers and, I guess, DoorDash as well from AB5. That vote was overturned on a kind of a technical, legal, narrow legal definition regarding workers' compensation. We won't talk about that. But what is the fate of that voter desire uh, to keep AB5 out of the gig work, the gig driver business? Yeah, I mean, in California, at least, in theory, another initiative could be commenced that would actually amend the California Constitution to address this technical issue uh, that led to it being found unconstitutional. So there still is a way for a, you know, a, a popular effort to address this in some fashion. But it, kind of going back to my earlier point, the, the opponents of the independent contractor model are relentless, and the legislators there will continue to find ways to attack the model. And the courts haven't been particularly friendly, depending on which court you're in front of. Um, kind of the, the fear is, is that this is going to be the similar attacks on those efforts will be made in other jurisdictions. For instance, in Massachusetts, uh, there's a version of a Prop 22 um, type legislation voter initiative going through as well. And you know, the opponents of that, of course, say, well, it got shot down in California. It should be shot down here in Massachusetts as well, even if it passes. Um, I'm no you know, comparative legal scholar on the similarities and differences between the California Constitution and the Massachusetts Constitution. But my instinct tells me that the two constitutions would be quite different. And, and I, I, would, I would think because the court's decision in California turned out a specific language in the California Constitution about workers' comp that you, you alluded to, the attack isn't going to be uh, as successful in Massachusetts. Um, but there's, there's no question, John, there is, a, there is a, a lot of support popularly for independent contractors uh, in this arena. And you, if you just look at the spend that California experienced in connection with the Prop 22 vote. I think there was over $220 million spent, uh, most expensive ballot measure in the history of California. And I expect we'll see something comparable play out here in Massachusetts as well. Yeah, we, we're, we're watching the, the Massachusetts one. Do you, any other states that are lining up for that that you're aware of? Not yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if, if it does emerge in some fashion. I mean, everybody kind of 
you know, watches and sees what happens in California, and you see a lot of um, similar activity elsewhere. Yeah, these things take a long time. I mean, I wrote a story about the Massachusetts uh, initiative like a year ago, and 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 I guess the, a decision was made. Okay, we passed all the tests that can go on the ballot now, and but it won't be on the ballot for a year and a half or something like that. So, unfortunately, we run out of time here, but we could talk about this for a long time. We we want to have you back. So. so uh, Mark, uh, our guest today at the Global Supply Chain Summit has been Mark Luau. He is a partner at the Benish Law Firm. Mark, any final thoughts, any like nice, succinct thing we should take with us about the whole issue of independent contractor versus employees? Sure. I, I just hope that everyone takes the basic advice, have a strong contract in place, but recognize that's not going to solve the problem completely. You have to make sure that your contract conforms with actual practice. So keep that in mind and the Let's hope that the, the model can survive. Do you think most companies get that? No. <laughs> they, they need, I well, wish I, more I, did. I wish more did understand that. I, I appreciate you being so blunt. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, again, Mark Bluebow, partner at the Benish Law Firm, co chair of the firm's transportation and logistics practice group. I've been your host for this interview, John Kingston. And please stay with us for more of the Global Supply Chain Week Summit. Thanks, John.